Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Hello and thank you for, um, uh, thank you Mark. Uh, this is my first time at an LDN conference, so um, I, I think I'm going to give a slightly different perspective on LDN and um, um, a, a fly on the wall perspective for what happens within a practice uh, such as ours. Um, what I do is I do bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. That's a mainstay of what I do. I would say it takes up about 60% uh, of what I do. Um, it then became not enough, not sufficient anymore, and I had to start uh, self-teaching myself integrative and functional medicine. Um, and so most of that is self-thought, and um, at that point I didn't quite know where to go to learn about all of these things, and so what I did was... Um, for any given topic that I did not know, I would pick five books, read five different experts' opinions of it, and um, uh, from personal experience, um, experimenting on my really nice patients, we came to develop a prot uh, protocols for patients that seemed to work for most. So combining bioidentical hormones with a functional me uh, medicine approach, and just consistently going around listening, listening, and studying, and that's how we go. Now, um, for those of you who are not very familiar by bioidentical hormones, just a little bit of a perspective. It doesn't only cover estrogen and progesterone. That seems to be the general idea about it. It doesn't. It basically refers to any and every hormone as long as it's bioidentically, um, bi it's identical to what's in our bodies and not, um, it, so it could be synthetic. It's probably made in a lab. It is not natural. Uh, as in, it comes from yam or soy, uh, made in a lab. However, it's molecularly identical to what's in our body. Um, so not only do we cover estrogen, progesterone, we also look at testosterone. We look at precursor hormones like pregnenolone and DHEA, uh, insulin, growth hormone, anything and everything that comes under the blanket of hormones, that's what we do. So once again, fly on the wall to see what we do within our practice. Now, one big difference between the way I practice and um, unfortunately what's available on the NHS or I suppose in the US uh, conventional medicine uh, family practice in the US is that uh, I have an hour for my patients, which is a lot compared to the 10 minutes that most physicians have. So today I'm going to be talking about um, hypothyroidism and in particularly Hashimoto's, which is autoimmune hypothyroidism. So uh, this has come about once again. It was a, my first patient ever was Hashimoto's, and I didn't know that much about it. So I was looking at her from the perspective of hormones only. And she's taught me a lot. And she, uh, the last I saw of her was last week, which is great. Uh, so she's been with me for close to four years now. And so let's talk about what happens when someone comes in. A typical patient that comes in, uh, f to their doctors for the first time is going to come in and talk about weight gain. That's a big one. We have a lot of females in their 30s or 40s coming in saying that no matter what they do, they keep increasing their exercise routine. They keep um, they're eating less and less. I mean, some of them have no idea how they survive on how little they eat. I'm sure they're not lying. Um, and it's weight gain despite everything that they do. They're tired all the time or more tired than they should be comparing to the way they used to be before. Constipation, not, uh, it's, it's quite a big one, but not all of them have it. Um, dry skin, hair loss, that's another big one. 
Um, they call all the time. This is not as noticeable in uh, menopausal women just because there's hot flushes and the rest of it, so you don't see quite as much of that. Sleeping too much, they need about eight to nine to 10 hours to function. If they don't get that, they need to uh, take a nap in the middle of the day. Weekends are spent sleeping if they can't afford to get that nine hours uh, during their regular weekdays. Um, and this is, the, this is the typical presentation. Every time I've got a patient who comes into me and they're like, uh, we, we, we were diagnosed with hypothyroidism X amount of time ago. My next question to them is like, why did you go to the doctors? And it'll be something like this. And um, uh, about 10% of what we do at our practice, 10 to 20% is aesthetics. And a lot of people look at aesthetics as this frau frau medicine. To me, it's not at all like that. I think it's extremely important. It's actually the first thing that makes people wonder what's wrong, why is my hair not great, why am I putting on weight, why is my skin so dull? I consider aesthetics to be highly, highly important actually in how it relates to what the person feels, what your skin, your skin tells you what happens inside. And if, if, if that's the first thing that would make you take the step to go out and look for a solution to your problems, great, that's wonderful. So typical, what happens? If a GP suspects a thyroid issue with all of this, it's fairly typical presentation. They would, uh, in the UK at least, they would ask for a TSH, okay? That's what your brain tells your gland to do. Uh, and if that number is high, they may test for your T4. So for most GP practices here, TSH and T4 is quite commonly done. Uh, there are, however, quite a few practices which will, only test, uh, which will test your T4 only if your TSH is out of whack, which is not good enough. T3, nah. Not much chance of that ever being tested. It's an expensive test. They don't want to test it. And if it comes back positive, what are they going to do with it? They have no idea what it means. Thyroid antibodies, you have to know the person. You, you know, you've got to be related. Otherwise, no chance. Reverse T3, what in the world is that? No one knows what it is. That's never going to happen. So let's go to our patient right now. This, I'm going to present one patient only to you just so that you, get, you have an idea of what she's like. So she's a 32-year-old dentist. Um, she's overweight, kind of petite. Uh, she had this sallow, dull skin. She moved fairly slowly to me, um, smiled a lot, but it, she, wasn't, she wasn't happy at all. She was quite joyless, you know, just slowly sitting down there. She looked kind of sad, although she smiled a lot. In her family history, she has a history of Hashimoto's. Both her father and her brother has Hashimoto's. Mom had diabetes, and that's about it. And she was 32 at this point when she came to me uh, and her diagnosis was of Hashimoto's when she was 25. Once again, the typical presentation, which I will bring you through in a little while. Um, she was also diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Okay, once again, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's actually a disease of insulin resistance and it's not to do with the, the, the ovaries in the cyst is, um, I mean, the cyst in the ovaries is actually a later present, uh, it's, it's a, sim it's a sign of the, it's a symptom of the disease, quite far on sign, sorry. Um, but a lot of people will assume that if you don't see the cyst, it doesn't exist, but no, it does. So she's been treated for that as well. And at the age of 30, they found uterine fibroids because she was bleeding a lot at that point. And her fibroid was 7.5 centimeters. So this is what she came into me with. Her symptoms, constipation, weight gain, hair loss, very poor temperature regulation, she had cold hands and feet, hot was too hot, cold is too cold. Frequently seen in vitamin D deficiency as well, so it's always either vitamin D thing or a thyroid issue. Gas and bloating related to her period cycles, very heavy periods of five days, 
uh, but the cycles were regular, which is quite nice. Uh, not very common. She couldn't cope with the tiredness, and she, I mean, being a dentist, she couldn't really cope with her job as well. She worked part-time, uh, couldn't do a five-day week. She had a very supportive husband, but um, it's someone that she had known for a really long time. However, she did say he was very busy and they were attending uh, couples therapy. And um, as we talked a little bit more, she started talking about the sexual issues between them. Uh, I'm, I also do psychosexual medicine, so it's always an area of interest for me. And she felt a lot of resentment towards him and she wasn't even sure why that was. Libido has been lost for four years, which is highly unusual in polycystic ovaries because their testosterone levels tend to be quite high. And it's the one thing you, you, uh, these girls generally have very high libido. And in hers, it was low. Uh, another not good sign. It should be high. And other symptoms, I tend to also ask my patients a lot um, if they have any non-specific or nagging complaints. One of those things that comes and goes, it's not there all the time, but it's sort of in the background and they don't quite know why. They don't think to seek help for it because they have no idea what to do. So neck stiffness was one of them. She has it every day. This normally progresses onto migraines, joint pains, and she has been diagnosed with golfer's elbow, elbow and wrist, uh, rashes on her forearm, and this had now progressed to the rest of her body. Decreased ability to handle stress, quite typical. Uh, increased anxiety, she constantly felt overwhelmed. Uh, she lost her temper a lot. Once again, not great for her marriage, which uh, adds even more stress to her. Poor quality of sleep. She's quite a light sleeper, so her sleep quality is not good. And on top of that, she requires around nine hours of sleep to function. And even then, the sleep was not restful at all. So the medications that she was on at this point is levothyroxine, 100 micrograms. They had actually gone up all the way to 150 for her and didn't find any difference at all, and they, they brought it back down to 100. She was on ulipristal acetate. That was to get her the size of a fibroid down a little bit, So we'll, uh, and that was on a cycle. That's how it was run by her gynecologist. So she was supposed to go on a three... Uh, rounds of this medication over a few months, and that was it. And metformin for a PCOS. Supplements that she was on, selenium, you know, she, she, she's fairly well read. She knows a little bit. So she, this is what she started herself on. So she's on her selenium on high-dose vitamin D, vitamin E, uh, multivitamins. Right, so when she came in to me, this is what she told me. She basically said she knew about LDN, and so that's why she came in to me. So all these other questions to her was, you know, she was wondering why I was asking all these questions, a lot of questions. What she told me is that she wanted to improve her quality of life and that she was interested in LDN and that she already knew about it. So we came to a diet at this point. So during my consultation, not only do I ask about the, um, the hormonal side of things and symptomology, I also am very interested to see what they eat. So she is Indian. Um, so she's got a typical vegetarian Indian diet. So it's a diet high in carbs, it's grain-based, uh, low protein, low fat. She ate a, um, and you know, with, so for those of you who know what an Indian meal is like, it's your chapatis, okay, which is wheat based, and you've got your dal, which is lentils, you've got your uh, uh, potato heavy, it's normally a lot of potatoes, lots of vegetables, um, and that was what was forming the bulk of her calories. And unfortunately, she was also of the school that um, fat is bad. And therefore, she tried her best. She's put on weight now. You know, she's trying to decrease her fat intake, and the protein intake is very low. So this girl has no building blocks at all for her hormones. Tea and coffee, very, really moderate. Exercise, she tried about 11,000 steps a day. For an average Londoner, that's not enough, actually. Uh, I won't comment for, the, uh, for other people. Um, and 
Now, we have created our own panel for my clinic, which is quite uh, detailed, especially when it comes to hormonal testing. And I was quite lucky in that this girl was also curious about, uh, like, from her symptoms, I knew she needed a little bit more in terms of intolerance testing, uh, just from her symptoms. And she was keen and she didn't mind spending her money on a Cyrex test. Uh, for those of you who are not aware of what Cyrex testing is, it's an intolerance test uh, for foods. And in my opinion, the best in the world at present. So the arrays that she went for in Cyrex, uh, based on my recommendation, is arrays 3, 4, 10, and 20. 3, 4, 10 basically covers every single thing, your gluten, your gluten cross-reacting foods, and all other food groups. It's excellent, really, really good. Um, and 20 will tell you if it has crossed your blood-brain barrier. Um, let's go back. Okay, now let's take a step back a little bit and see what's happened to her from a conventional point of view. So once again, levothyroxine started with 50, went on to 150 micrograms. Her fibroids, a ulipristal, um, and her PCOS. And how did she fare on this, which is a fairly standard uh, conventional treatment? There was, as, as expected, initial benefit, you know, and the initial benefit can last anything from a few months to a few years, and this I think most of us uh, who deal with thyroid patients will know and see and will understand that. After that, it hit a ceiling. Energy didn't really return. She, it was better than what it was originally, but not quite right. It just wasn't right. Symptoms remained the same even when her dose was dropped. This is always a concern. You should always wonder why it's still the same. So she felt, the, the way she felt at this point, and that was why she looked so down, was that she was in this dark tunnel. She was only 32. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. And at this point, of course, she was asked a million-dollar question. How do you feel? Are you depressed? Of course, the answer is going to be yes. And what happens? She gets offered an antidepressant. Classic. Thankfully, she didn't take it. Right. So... This is a working functional diagnosis that I came up with. Uh, I came to before the lab results were back. Uh, for, for the average layperson out here, a, functional, a working diagnosis basically means I'm guessing. I've got no idea, I'm just guessing. Yeah? So my guess was that she had an amount of adrenal fatigue. Um, her thyroid was suboptimal. It wasn't right, and I needed to find out a little bit more why. And because she has Hashimoto's, and we knew that she had Hashimoto's, uh, it was actually diagnosed in India. That's why she, uh, we knew it. Had it been, I think, in the UK, uh, it would have been missed. Um, so right now, uh, when I look at Hashimoto's, as far as I'm concerned, I'm looking at two different things. I'm looking at hypothyroidism, and I'm looking at an autoimmune disease. So I'm looking at it as two separate components. So she's got an unmanaged autoimmune disease. Her diet is quite poor. No building blocks at all, no protein, no fat. Sleep quality is poor, which means she's, uh, she's not able to generate enough growth hormone for wear, tear, healing purposes. Um, she's got leaky gut, it's very obvious that she has it. Food intolerances as well. So this is sort of what I had in my head. Now this is a summary of the lab profile that's uh, relevant to her. Um, her fasting insulin very high despite being on two grams of metformin a day. I mean, that's a pretty high dose and she can't, she can't keep control of it. Her progesterone for someone as young as that, it's very, very low, but then we, I, I thought I would, we would need to take a step back because she's on ulipristal, so I knew it wasn't a, a good indication of where her estrogen progesterone levels were. Free testosterone, um, as you see, quite low, quite low. Uh, her TSH, 
seemed very suppressed. You know, 0.45, it's suppressed. Free T4 is quite high. Of course, it's on 100 micrograms. T3, moderate antibodies are quite high. Her hormone levels showed that she had an, uh, a flipped LH and FSH ratio. Now, this is quite an American thing. Uh, and for some reason, it's not looked at or not understood this way in uh, the UK. In the UK, when you diagnose PCOS, it's generally diagnosed through uh, anti-malarian hormones, and you have to do a scan to make sure that they're actually cysts before they will give you that diagnosis. But because most of my hormone training is in the US, what we look for is a flipped ratio of LH and FSH. She had a classic flipped ratio. Insulin levels well, are very high. Um, so sex hormones, it was a, a little bit all over the place. I haven't shown that her LH and FSH, but when you looked at all of it, you couldn't find a trend, you couldn't find a picture to it. And uh, what we tend to look for after seeing these kind of results over a prolonged period of time is patterns. There was no pattern there, there's uh, something wrong. For her thyroid, as, um, as I mentioned, and hematology, biochemistry, there was nothing out of ordinary, it was all okay. Her Cyrex came back as being extremely interesting, and I'm really, really glad she actually went along with me to do it. Her intolerances were to lentils, potatoes, beets, soy, cashew, oats, and gluten, which means what she was eating every single day was attacking her gut. So not only did we have a scenario of really, really bad attack constantly happening, with all that attack that was going on, her body's attacking itself. What's going to happen to the adrenals? It's going to go up. Your cortisol level is going to shoot up. So there's quite a lot going on in this girl. And on top of that, there's nothing to build her back up. So there's a lot that we're looking at here. At this point, the easiest thing to do, of course, is to manage the dietary changes as indicated by the Cyrex labs. Some of these changes would be permanent changes, as in she'd probably have to go gluten-free for the rest of her life. Some of the others, as the gut heals, she'll probably able, be able to reintroduce those foods back into her diet. We, uh, for the autoimmune side of things, she, we put her on LDN, of course, and uh, she had to go gluten-free. For those of you who are not familiar with Hashimoto's and gluten, uh, the gluten molecule resembles your gland. So every time you eat something containing gluten, um, in the process of attacking the gluten, it's also going to attack your gland at the same time. And so it's actually quite crucial to go gluten-free as much as you can. We decided to optimize her sleep as well and to manage her adrenals. For her sex hormone side of things, I decided to wait on it because she was still undergoing treatment. Um, another reason I decided to pick her as a sample patient is because I actually did things stepwise. So I've got three sets of results to show you uh, with three different types of changes and you can quite clearly see what LDN has done overall. It's fascinating. So in terms of prescription, what I decided to put her on is pregnenolone. Um, now, this pregnenolone in her case was given to, uh, it, it's a mother hormone, it's right on top of the chain, and it's been given to manage the bottom of the chain a little better and to counter what we call a pregnenolone steal effect, where pregnenolone is stolen to make more cortisol. So that, that was why I was given melatonin for a short period of time to improve the quality of a sleep. So I don't think of melatonin as a sleeping tablet. That's not how I look at it. All I want is for her to have a better quality sleep, particularly between 12 and 2 o'clock where growth hormone spurt occurs and therefore you get a better quality of sleep, better growth hormone release, therefore better healing. Very important for a gut. So adrenal supplements, uh, fish oil, LDN drops. Uh, we, we tend to like to use sublingual drops. We start from 0.5 and uh, what I gen generally tell, tend to tell them is to increase it every four to five days, depending on reaction. If, if they're able to, if they have side effects, try to ride it for two weeks. If they're able to, if they can't, stay at the current dose. She was able to go up to 
levothyroxine at this point, I decided not to change anything, uh, uh, just to see where it was, because I thought it was too many changes for her already. And I always have to go along with um, what I think my patients can handle in terms of changes to their lifestyle. I want compliance. I don't care what I have to do to get compliance, but I will go at their speed. That's fine. We've made, so during the first phase, we basically concentrated on an LDN. Three months on, uh, I saw her again, and she's very good. She would come back um, at the right time. At this point, she's on her full uh, 4.5 milligram of LDN, adrenal supplements, fish oil, melatonin, and pregnenolone. In the past three months, she had not fallen sick even once before she used to get a lot of colds, which she didn't tell me about until I saw her again. Her fibro was by this time smaller. It was about two centimeters smaller, um, and all the gynecologists are telling her, get pregnant quick, but she didn't want to. That was the solution to keeping the size of the fibroid in place, but she couldn't. She, she wasn't in the right place. She, how, she was starting to feel less tired, less body aches, felt ready to do more exercise, to take on more challenges, but she hadn't started anything yet. She was just starting to feel a little bit more normal. She tried missing LDN a few times, and every time she missed it, all her aches and tightness would come back the next day. It was quite uh, significant, the changes of taking it and not taking it. Bowel habits remained the same, but she said there was that, uh, she said that there, were no, there was no gas and bloating at this point in time. Again, probably because of the intolerances that she took away from. Her wheat consumption had gone down by 90% at this point. Her period's flow was much, much lighter. Stress levels were much lower because she could now handle things more. Temperature regulation improved. Her fingers and toes were not as cold. Her skin was less dry. Libido was quite high. And, but her hair loss was still there. That was still there. She was now able to function on seven to eight hours of sleep, and this is very important and extremely exciting because right now, this girl had a lot more energy, not just because of what we've done, but also because the quality of sleep has improved. Her moods in the morning were better, and her diet was a lot better. She had started cooking with a lot of good fats, like ghee. At this point, we did another lab, another set of lab, and these were the results. So because we'd never changed anything the first time round, this is what we did. At this point, I actually advised her to do a slightly more detailed panel just to see where we are, where we were. So we've got the uh, T4 about the same, the uh, free T3 was about the same as before. Her thyroid antibodies still high. Reverse T3 was quite high. Now, for those of you uh, who don't really understand what reverse T3 is, um, uh, an extremely basic way of explaining it is that it's a slightly useless T3. Okay, so if this number is high, frequently what I find is that I need to go quite high with my T3 in order to get the response I need from my patients. However, um, naturally it's not as simple as that, but at our level I think that's good enough. Progesterone and estrogen was quite nice at this point. It was fairly well balanced. And so this time, in, in terms of changes of management, what I decided to do is I decided to decrease the T3, uh, the levothyroxine to 75 micrograms. One reason I do this is because people are scared if you take it away completely. Whereas if someone were to come to me and, they have, uh, and I'm the one diagnosing them to have hypothyroidism, I wouldn't even bother with T4. Um, and I started on T3 at this point. Um, I tend not to do um, desiccated thyroid for my Hashimoto's patient because it's a glandular element. And there are two schools on, uh, of thoughts on this. Um, and the school that I belong to is that you know, it, it resembles your gland. So it's, it's an autoimmune disease. If it's going to attack your gland, it's going to attack the desiccated thyroid. I'm not happy with that. So I always stick to the, uh, it's bioidentical, but it's synthetically made in a lab. And I do T3 alone. So we started on 25 micrograms in the morning. 
Nine months on, so it's six months from the second consultation, I see her again. At this point, she feels marginally better. It's not a great deal better, marginally. However, one thing she's forgotten is that she's now decided to start a postgraduate course. Okay, And this is the bit that's really interesting with patients. It's like they forget they are now able to take on 10 times more work. And then they're like, yeah, I feel slightly better. When actually, they would never have been able to do that in the first place. And she's doing a postgraduate. Her, her days are quite a bit longer. Tightness is quite a lot better. She's now mostly gluten-free. Relationship with her husband is a lot better. Migraines have stopped. Neck ache is better. Rash has improved. Her skin is brighter. Her hair loss has decreased, and that was a big thing for her. She was all about her hair. She's like, she used to talk about her hair all the time, even during the consultation. Telling you, vanity is a good thing. She had some amount of weight loss. Overall, she was in a much better place. Looking back at her lab profiles, as you see, the TSH is once again suppressed. Uh, no surprises there. Estrogen and progesterone, very well balanced without me doing anything um, to the estrogen and progesterone itself. I tend to do that. I tend to uh, balance that out in people where I, I, I can't do it just with precursor hormones. But in her case, I'm using pregnenolone as a precursor hormone. Um, but otherwise, she, she was in a pretty good place. This is just a comparison of the lab. So if you have a little look at it, you can see that the antibodies have gone down gradually. Not, it's, it's not gone down drastically, but I am getting symptomatic results. I tend to find this quite a lot in my patients. I'll have certain patient profile where the uh, thyroid antibodies could even go down to normal, and other people where I'm doing exactly the same thing, or more or less the same thing, and it doesn't go down as much. I'm not entirely sure why, uh, but it is what it is. However, symptomatically, I am getting the results I want. Um, the rest of the parameters, as you see now, the uh, T4 is in a nice place, T3 is in a nice place, everything else is nice and balanced. So if you take a step back, have a look at her, the patient summary. She first came in with Hashimoto's, managed conventionally in the usual way, um, but what they weren't looking at, and this is the bit that we have to ask, she had sex hormone disruption, she had adrenal fatigue, not recognized in conventional medicine. Psychosexual issues, once again, not talked about, not, uh, it, it's starting to pick up in the UK. Nutrition was very poor, leaky gut, it's not recognized. Um, in initial functional management, what we did was we managed her autoimmunity, we managed her adrenal fatigue and her sleep issues. Um, and this was with going, you know, starting her on LDN, going gluten-free, removing other foods that cause all the intolerances, and it, we, we got quite a long way with that. Three-month review, by this point she had reached a full dose of LDN, even more symptomatic uh, relief, and by nine months, most of her nagging symptoms, and that is why I like to ask the question on nagging symptoms. It's one of those things people don't think about, it, it, it doesn't register. And because my notes are so copious, it's taken over an hour. When I go back and I read, out, read it out to them, I was like, this is what you told me before. You had your neck ache, your migraines. It takes a few seconds for it to sink in. And they're like, oh, yes, I'm not getting that anymore. And the improvement to life is brilliant. So as I said, I chose this for a reason. It, uh, it, I, I chose this because I managed First, I managed her with LDN first, then I moved on to uh, the thyroid. And at the third point, I was just taking a step back, reviewing her all over. That's what we did. And I think it's quite important for you to see how the journey is for this patient. And in, in the bigger scheme of things, all that we did was we managed her over a period of nine months, really a very short period of time considering that she's been suffering from all of this. She was diagnosed at 25, which means she was suffering from it probably 
since her late teens or early 20s, in nine months, what we had achieved was significant. And the reason uh, that I wanted to pick her as well is because I thought it's quite interesting for you to see how hormones can work in conjunction with functional medicine and with things like LDN and metformin and the rest of it and how the whole thing comes together and we can achieve results very quickly. And these are not fake results. These are real results. These patients do extremely well. So, which brings me back to the question that this talk is about, are we asking the right questions? In conventional medicine, we certainly are not. We need to take a step back, look at this person as a whole, and take it from there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org.